What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Many of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, which is my effort to find the most interesting people in the world and sit with them for hours while I ask questions in an effort to learn. So it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite audio platform, watch episodes on YouTube, and tell your friends and family about the podcast. My goal is to help millions learn from the world's most interesting people. So let's get into today's episode. Scott Patterson is the author of a brand new book, Chaos Kings, How Wall Street Traders Make Billions in the New Age of Crisis. In this book, he breaks down two of the best traders in history, Nassim Taleb and Mark Spitznagel. Now, when I say they're some of the best traders in history, you may be scratching your head wondering what I mean. But at Universa, which both of them have helped set up and run, they are returning over 100% annually based on audited returns. They've been doing that for over a decade. It's one of the great runs. But what's more interesting is the strategy that they employ is not going long equities. Instead, they buy out of the money options and wait for big market crashes. This book is fantastic. And this conversation with Scott is even better. Here's my conversation with Scott Patterson. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got Scott Patterson here. Scott is the author of Chaos Kings, How Wall Street Traders Make Billions in the New Age of Crisis. It's a fantastic book, uh, specifically covering Nassim Taleb and Mark Spitznagel. Scott, I thought a great place for us to start our conversation would be around this idea of a crisis hunter. That is a phrase that is used uh, a couple of times in the book and seems to be a great way to label what these guys are doing. Is that a new concept or have people always been kind of hunting crisis? It's just now with the way that the finance industry is set up, you can actually make money off of it. Yeah, it's interesting. Crisis Hunter was what they, uh, Nassim and Mark called themselves when they launched their first hedge fund, Empirica. And uh, it was also one of the original titles of the book, <laughs> uh, Crisis Hunters. Um, talking with the publisher, we, we changed it to Chaos Kings. It's a little catchier, but. They so they invented this concept back in the late 90s. Uh, it evolved in their first hedge fund, Empirica. And as far as I know, no one had ever created a strategy like this that delivers these explosive returns when the market crashes. And it was pretty successful back then. They shut it down mainly because Nassim uh, couldn't handle the stress of the trading because it's it's a very stressful strategy because you actually lose a lot. You're uh, consistently you don't you don't lose a lot of money, but you're using losing a lot over time. Um, the idea is, yeah, you might lose like a year or two, and then when the market crashes, you make way more than you lost. That's how it's supposed to work. Uh, relaunched it. Mark relaunched it in uh, 2007 with Universa, and. Pretty good timing because <laughs> 2008 uh, saw the global financial crisis. And an interesting story I tell in the book is how when they launched Universa, which people look at now as being this very successful hedge fund managing billions of dollars, no one wanted to invest. <laughs> it was such a weird, unique strategy that people just didn't get it. They traveled the country talking to portfolio managers, pension funds, family offices. And 
you know, everybody looked at this and said, you know, wait a second, I'm going to be losing money month after month on this thing. Like, that's terrible. You know, uh, traditional Wall Street strategies like very smooth, consistent returns. Problem is strategies like that often have what Nassim calls hidden risk, and they can suffer a lot during these crises. So they have a very lumpy return, you know, year after year, they're losing several percent. And then all of a sudden they make a thousand percent or 2000%. And that's, it's designed to be like, you know, time to crashes protects portfolios. It also gives investors a big chunk of cash when everything else is down so they can take that and plow it back into the market. So you start the book uh, talking about Ackman, uh, Bill Ackman, obviously, during yeah. the uh, pandemic, um, he had put on basically an insurance protection uh, using a somewhat similar strategy, uh, a couple billion dollars there uh, that was able to offset losses and kind of a long portfolio. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, this idea that like in this hyper-connected world, people are uh, predicting that there's going to be more and more volatility. And ultimately what this is doing yeah. is it's profiting off of that volatility. And so, uh, yes, Nassim and Mark seem to have kind of pioneered this as a standalone fund with this specific strategy. But is it really that different than maybe some other hedge fund managers may be doing when they're hedging or when they're trying to uh, specifically protect the portfolio that is long? Uh, it depends on how the strategy is implemented. So, you know, what Ackman did in early 2020 was a, uh, a strategic trade based on his assessment of what was going on in the world with the pandemic, with markets. And he saw early on that the risk uh, that he understood COVID uh, posed to the world wasn't being priced into assets yet in, say, you know, February, early March. So he was able to load up on these positions uh, pretty cheaply. He, I think he only put in like $26 million and that turned into 2.5 or 2.6 billion when, when the market crashed. So that's a strategic uh, trade made on timing, like just similar to what a lot of the, uh, you know, the big short guys did for the housing market in the mid 2000s. That is not what Universa does. Their strategy is basically you always have that big short on no matter what's going on. You don't make any predictions. You don't try to time things. It's just there because according to, you know, Nassim's black swan uh, view of the world is that nobody can predict these things. They come out of the blue. Uh, they happen so fast that it's extremely difficult to, to trade on them. Like, you know, Ackman did it. Uh, he, I, I see what, you know, he did in early 2020 was a trader, you know, at the top of his game. I mean, he was really <laughs> moving. He, he, and one of the crazy things that he did was he, you know, he got those billions and he put a lot of it back into the stock market in March of 2020, which is, you know, who, who does that? <laughs> but that trade earned him another billion. Um, the, the, this is something that, uh, you know, it's, it's just very hard to do on a consistent basis year after year. So the universe strategy is, you don't time things. You just put it on. It's a, you know, what they recommend is you put about 3% of your portfolio into that tail hedge and the rest that frees up your uh, rest of your cash to put into stocks. 
Now, this obviously become a very, very popular strategy if you just look at the AUM, right? Uh, I think the latest numbers that you include at the end of the book is uh, Universal has about $20 billion of assets under management. They have 21 yep. employees, right? So yeah. kind of a, a billion dollars of AUM for every one employee. Um, yeah. And uh, you mentioned that when they launched, they only had $300 million or so of assets. And so as they have got more and more adoption, they've now become one of the top 25 largest hedge funds in the world. Uh, when you see that, is that just people uh, kind of buying into the idea of the uh, kind of tail hedge? Is that them doing a better job of marketing? Like what's driving so much AUM going into that strategy now? Um, and is it something where, you know, they went from 300 million to 20 billion on their way to 100 billion? Or how do you see kind of that future life of how big the fund could actually get? Yeah, their AUM has moved up and down uh, a lot over the years. So it it jumped up pretty quickly after the global financial crisis. And then it's, you know, one of the challenges they've encountered is keeping investors in the strategy because after a few years, a lot of them look at it and say, hey, you know, I'm losing this money all these, you know, past few years. Uh, I don't think the market's going to crash. Everything looks fine and they pull out. So uh, I, I tell uh some humorous and sad story really about CalPERS uh, and how they were uh, making a big investment in Universa in starting around 2016, 2017. Um, they were putting billions into Universa. And by late 2019, they had about, I think, a position of about 5 billion. And then a new manager took over looked at the tail hedge and said, you know, this is a waste of money. Uh, <laughs> um, we're just losing cash. It's never going to get big enough to matter for us because we're hundreds of billions uh, big. So in early 2020, a uh, couple months before uh, COVID um, really hit, they eliminated their entire position uh, at Universa. <laughs> so that's one of the hard things about this strategy is, is keeping people in it. So CalPERS gave up a lot uh, by pulling out. Um, why Why is it so big? I think that, you know, the strategy definitely is catching on uh, and more and more funds are uh, getting into it. I've been getting feedback from fund managers, uh, tail hedge fund managers who've read the book and say like, oh, it's great you're writing about this because it's really important um, and it's effective. I think people are starting to figure out it's effective and, and it's I, I write about and as Mark and Nassim have have talked about, their strategy doesn't fit within the standard uh, portfolio theory uh, propagated on Wall Street and in finance schools that try to uh, that that favor strategies with low volatility um, that are smooth risk adjusted returns. Um, you uh, you manage your risk in a way to maximize your returns. They do pretty much the opposite of what modern portfolio theory recommends. They have extremely volatile returns, losses year after year, and then big jumps. And that just doesn't fit within the models. I think that people, you know, Wall Street is starting to figure out like, okay, doesn't fit the model, but it works, <laughs> right? So uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot more funds out there. Universe has got 20 billion. We'll see if it grows. Maybe... You know, pe uh, people really freaked out after 2020, the pandemic. And it, I think it it woke up a lot of people to the fact that, you know, there is increasing risk out there 
And, you know, as globalization expands, as connectivity expands, that's, you know, one of the driving forces of COVID was, you know, air, airplanes, uh, people getting on planes, you know, from the Milan fashion show and, you know, flying back to America or other parts of Europe, carrying the virus with them. Um, that uh, a lot of epidemiologists say this this is a, a new world we're living in where these viruses are going to spread more rapidly and, uh, you know, create the kind of chaos that we saw that year. So I, I think that that's um, that's one of the big things that's that's driving the, the money flows into these tail hedge funds. What's fascinating to me about both Nassim and Mark is that they both kind of figured out this strategy separately in their past life yeah. before they started the hedge fund, right? Um, and you tell both stories, uh, obviously, um, with Nassim kind of doing it in the finance world and, and trying to understand it. Um, but but also you talk about this principle of like, maybe most of finance is based on the idea that uh, everything is normal and then the outlier is the volatile situation. But maybe actually we should flip that on its head and the volatile situations are the normal times and it's the uh, periods of kind of no volatility that is the outlier. And, and the reason being, mm -hmm. you know, if you take away the top 10 trading days a year or something, it's like pretty much flat, uh, and, you know, year in, year out. And so it really is all about the big moves, either up or down. Um, yeah. and, and so is it something where uh, we've almost educated an entire generation of people in finance in a perspective that fundamentally Nassim and Mark just reject because of the work that they had done uh, and kind of the experience they had going into this? Yes. I, you know, I think it's one of the key insights that they both had is that it's, it's not focusing on the day-to-day -day returns. Those are going to come, you know, if you're in the market, uh, you don't really need to work that hard to get those returns. What you really need to work hard on is the big, crashes and uh mark likes to talk about um this scenario that i think is pretty illuminating where if you say if you have a hundred dollars in a in a trade and it goes down 50 percent in order to get back to where you were you need to make a hundred percent return which is pretty daunting math right so what you need to do is to protect yourself against that 50 percent decline and if you can do that, you're going to live to trade another day and the, you know, the incremental returns will just come if you are in the market. You know, uh, you don't need to have a real fancy trading strategy. Um, and, yeah, I, I, you know, tell this story about Mark when he was an early, you know, cub trader at the Chicago Board of Trade in the 80s. And he, he learned this lesson with a, this veteran commodity trader, uh, Everett Clip, who taught him something that's very contrary to uh, what what most investors are are told is that you need to love to lose. And uh, and this trader just beat it into him uh, over and over again, telling him, you know, this is against human nature, of course, but you need to get this into your strategy. And what that meant as a you know trader on the floor of the CBOT is if your position starts going down, get out of it. Just get out of it right away. Learn, you know, live to trade the next day and you'll survive. And, you know, he, that, that is kind of, it's very similar to what Nassim was doing at the same time by buying these derivative contracts that usually lose money. They're, they're big bets on extreme moves. Usually doesn't happen. So you lose money on that trade. 
But when it does, when you do get an extremely volatile event, you make, you know, way more than you lost. Uh, huge, huge returns, you know, as like I, I also tell a story of Nassim's trading on Black Monday when positions he bought for, you know, a couple pennies were trading for, you know, four or five bucks. And that's a, the magnitude of that return does not fit within any parameter of a, a, you know, a model. It was so far outside the models that it, it was something like a trade that like that could only happen in, you know, once every five universes. <laughs> according to the uh to the math so he learned early on both of them learned lessons kind of you know from different perspectives but when they met in late 99 at new york university uh new york university um they uh they had this mind meld where they get just kind of you know saw that they were doing the exact same thing and it just it, it worked they really clicked so they're two very different people as well Right. You at one point talked yeah. about how like Mark went a couple of times, I think, to kind of the intellectual debates uh, that Nassim would hold. Yeah. He'd kind of like hold court in these like cafes or libraries or whatever. And Mark basically was like, I I'd rather like jump off the building. Right. Like this is horrible. <laughs> yeah. This is not for me. Uh, I think you described him as like more serious, uh, whereas Nassim was very much like kind of an academic uh, in, in nature. Um, is it a thing where opposites attract? Because you also talk about this idea like they just enjoyed walking around New York City or other places and kind of talking and, and you know, arguing and debating and, and all this type of stuff. Or is there something mm -hmm. else driving the relationship as to why they had so much respect for each other and why they had been able to work together and, and really kind of pioneer the strategy? Yeah, they definitely had similar worldviews. Like they were both into libertarianism. Um, they read some of the same philosophers like Popper. Uh, so there definitely was a chemistry there that worked. And at the same time, like you say, they're totally different uh, people. The seem is, you know, he calls himself a flaneur, you know, which basically means like strolling around town aimlessly and jump, you know, popping into bookstores and museums. And I always envisioned, you know, him wearing these loafers and a silk scarf, uh, you would never, as I say in the book, you would never hear Mark Spitznagel call himself a flaneur. Uh, he, he is the opposite of that. Yeah, he's, he's the anti-flaneur. He's, huh? he's the anti-flaneur. He's anti-flaneur, definitely. <laughs> uh, he also likes, you know, daredevil uh, hobbies like soaring on these engineless uh, planes, um, skateboarding. You'd never see Nassim Taleb on a skateboard. I mean, I would, I would love to see that uh, image. <laughs> um, so yeah, they've got, they've got very, you know, different uh, interests in life. Nassim is, uh, a, as he will tell you, and I, has told me dozens of times, uh, he does not see himself as a Wall Street guy, as a trader, as a finance guy. Uh, he wants to be known as a, as a thinker, as a philosopher, as a scientist. Um, which I think he's achieved with his his books and his research. People still associate him a bit with Wall Street, especially Wall Street people associate him with that. But I think more, you know, pop like his more popular image is a, you know, somebody who writes these fascinating books of philosophy. And uh, whereas Mark is very happy to call himself a traitor, and that's all he wants to be known as. He he has written some some fascinating books, um, but they're they're very trade oriented books. Um, so, you know, it, I think it's why Nassim couldn't stick with it. He just didn't 
have the love of the game that Mark does. And Mark, uh, as I say in the book, when they shut down their first hedge fund Empirica, he was furious. <laughs> he was like, this is a great strategy. Why are you doing this? Don't you realize what we can do with this? Um, and Nassim was just like, I've had it. You know, I, I can't do it anymore. I think he was concerned about the impact on his health that it was having. He really stressed out. Uh, whereas Mark was, he he believed in the strategy. He understood that you had to go through these periods of of losing but it was going to pay off, it, you know, he he thought. So he relaunched it, it you know, shut down Empiric in 2004, started up Universa in 2007. And, you know, it's uh, it's done. It's had a very successful run. So he was right. So when you think about um, Nassim and kind of wanting to be more of the thinker, the philosopher, the scientist, you know, kind of the non-trader, is it almost um, there's a guy, Rob Henderson, who talks about like luxury beliefs. Right. And, and the ability mm -hmm. to uh, want to be that because you already made the money. Right. It is like yeah. uh, uh, if you were just starting out, maybe actually you would be much more focused on Wall Street because it was about the pursuit of uh, financial freedom. And then once you get it now, all of a sudden it's like, hey, I don't care about that anymore. Now I want to be more in this other uh, realm. Do you get the mm -hmm. sense in your conversations with Nassim like that's part of this is that they actually had so much success early on? And then that provided the opportunity to not worry about Wall Street finance trading and, and, and kind of personal finances. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he he's has said that the money that he made on Black Monday was more than he's ever made in anything else. Nobody really knows how much he made. Um, so he, you know, he says that gave him what he calls fuck you money. And he could just go do what he want. I think he he, you know, he's always been a reader. Uh, you know, I talk about when he was uh, a kid growing up in in Lebanon, you know, he was reading all these books. He th There was a war going on in, in Beirut and he was confined to the cellar and he was just reading and reading and reading. Um, so it's it's not like he made money and said, OK, I want to, you know, become an intellectual now. I think he always was. Uh, he just. um gravitated to wall street and you know it was the 80s it was a you know popular thing to do um and he he was good at it and he was also pretty good at math um so you know i, I think that the thing is and i was recently talking to him about this because a, as you know this seems a very divisive figure um on wall street he's he can be very abrasive and a lot of people just hate his guts uh you know, for one reason or another, uh, either he's attacked them or, you know, on Twitter, you know, or they just think he's a, an asshole. Um, I think part of it is, uh, especially among the top tier hedge fund managers is jealousy. You know, I, I know a lot of hedge fund managers. Uh, I, I covered the industry for years and they all <laughs> almost to a one see themselves as soaring intellectuals. Um, with, uh, you know, they've, they've read a lot. Uh, they want to write a book. Many of them, many, some have written books, haven't done that well. And, uh, he, he's kind of done what they all, you know, secretly want to do is become, you know, this popular thinker, not known for the money that they've made, but as being a, you know, intellectual genius, um, and I, I just think that there's there's a lot of jealousy going on there with him. 
So you don't know this, but uh, during his uh, transition from Bitcoin supporter to Bitcoin critic, he uh, he came at me viciously. And uh, I said to myself, really? I was like, yeah, I, I, uh, I said, look, man, I got no problem with him. I, st I still uh, think of him in uh, incredibly high regard. But uh, I do think that, you know, part of the public like attacking of other people definitely, you know, puts bad taste in some people's mouth. Um, but I always do wonder, yeah. is that a requirement, right? For, if you're so contrarian, if you have such a high disagreeableness, like we know that you have to be contrarian and right uh, in order to kind of make outsized returns. Does that just kind of come with the territory? And if you think of, you know, sports as an example, uh, Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or, you know, na name your you know favorite sports person. They got some, you know, skeletons in the closet of personality that uh, people just kind of chalk up and like, well, <laughs> he's the best, you know, basketball player of all time. Like, what'd you expect? He was just gonna be like this nice guy. Like, no, he's a killer, right? Yeah, and and, and right. it seems like Talib maybe has a, a little bit of that as well, uh, and, and maybe that leads yeah. to some of the the abrasiveness. Totally, and he's always been like that. Um, just looking back at comments that he was making in the '90s uh, about financial models and how stupid many of them are. Um, and I, I think it, it took somebody like him to, uh, to just say so forcefully that wall street's got a problem. It's using all of these models that hide risk and cut out the tails, you know, like value at risk. He's been, you know, complaining about value at risk for decades since the nineties um, I found some old writing from him that, you know, was a, about how flawed that was as a, as a risk model. And yet every bank, every hedge fund uses it. Uh, and, you know, it, it works 95% of the time. But what, you know, why would you use a model that cuts out the most volatile days 5% of the time of the year and say, you know, okay, we're, we're fine most of the time these outliers are going to come along and, you know, uh, we'll deal with them when, you know, so everybody's looking at the, you know, the middle of the bell curve and Asim is saying, no, that is, that is not what you need to think about. You need to think about those tails because those are going to kill you if, if you don't protect against those. And that's really, um, I think more than anything, the innovation that he brought it, many people criticized him and you, and you can look at, you know, one of the chief criticisms he's had to endure is people saying, no, we all knew about tails and you can find going back decades, you know, research showing that there's these volatile events, there's these fat tails. Um, and, you know, people were aware of them, but they weren't incorporating them into their trading models because it screwed everything up. <laughs> you know, uh, I saw, um, some uh email exchanges that he he shared with me with uh a very senior financial theorist a nobel prize winner actually and this nobel prize winner was telling to seem yeah we know about the fat tails but the problem is when we put them into our models it makes things a lot harder <laughs> <laughs> and it's difficult to trade on them and and it seems like well you know okay you're you're ignoring reality and that's going to be a problem for you. And it's kind of funny, like after the global financial crisis, value at risk was just completely discredited. Um, I know we at the Wall Street Journal, we wrote about it and how this is one of the problems that the banks had is that they, you know, they didn't see the risk in the, in the uh, housing market. 
because they were just looking at these average returns over years and didn't, you know, it, it wasn't even in the models. And even a lot of the derivatives that were used were using these bell curve models with no fat tails. And yet, if you if you look at any uh, uh, financial disclosure from a major bank right now, they're using value at risk, <laughs> the same thing. And that's how they're managing their risk. Now, I, I think that a lot more are aware of being, uh, you know, concerned about the tails and probably are implementing uh, hedge strategies. So hopefully, you know, that that will protect them the next time there's a crash. But, you know, in early 2020, it, if the Fed hadn't come in with liquidity injections, like these massive liquidity injections and buying bonds and even junk bonds, um, the you know we would have seen the same cascading failures again as we we saw in two thousand eight. So it's the Fed that's managing the tail risk right now. It, it's fascinating to think that um, you know Mark Spitznagel now with Universa, which Nassim I think is still an advisor to, but but mm -hmm. Universa has become probably based on everything I've seen the best performing hedge fund over the last you know ten or fifteen years. Um, I think in the book, you uh, when you kind of draw the line on the returns, they've averaged over a hundred percent annual returns for more than a mm -hmm. decade, right? And and we've heard of you yeah, know, those are audited uh, returns. Yeah, so like you know, we've heard of obviously Renaissance and kind of sixty plus percent, um, and you know these kind of almost video game numbers. But Universal specifically uh, having a hundred percent annual returns over a decade is pretty impressive. Um, but it feels like uh, where Nassim is very public and he's constantly going on television. He's constantly, you know, kind of out there as that thinker, as that philosopher. Uh, Mark is much more reserved. He kind of is hanging out on his farm and uh, yeah, he wrote the books, but I don't see him, uh, you know, kind of volunteering to go and do interviews very often and, and things like that. And so is that just his personality or, or how did you read into that? Yeah, I think he's definitely not nearly as uh, interested in appearing in public as Nassim is, uh, I think it also, you know, kind of enhances the the mystique a, a bit. You don't see Jim Simons of Renaissance uh, coming on TV. Um, and, and in terms of returns, I, you know, the medallion fund at, at Renaissance is probably unmatched. And be, for one thing, it's, um, it's, big it's really big I don't, I don't know how much how big it is now but it's you know what last time i was uh looking looking at that fund i think it was 50 billion and to get the 80 percent returns on something like that year after year is is mind-blowing um i was actually the first reporter to get inside the renaissance office uh more than a decade ago when when simons was stepping down um, and I, I knew people, so I've, I've written a lot about them, but university what is was that definitely like? hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You can't say that. They just move on. What was that <laughs> like when you go in the Renaissance office? Yeah, it was, it was cool. Cause they brought us into their server room, which had all, you know, these computer, uh, big computers. Um, and I thought that was fascinating because I was, you know, looking at these computers and thinking like, what is going on inside those things? Um, everybody wants to know it, they've always been, you know, uh, a, a, a source of speculation and, and mystery on wall street because they, they seem to have cracked the code. 
uh, and they've got all these PhDs and, you know, so we walked around the office. Uh, it, it was funny. It was like they're off parts of the building that had a bunch of Chinese programmers. And then you go down a floor and they're like, here's where the Russians are. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was it was very interesting. When you think of uh, Spitznagel today, you mentioned multiple times throughout the book that he's like on Zoom with his traders from his farm. Uh, what, what is that about? Like, is this just uh, because he's only got 21 employees and the strategy is kind of so simple and just it's about discipline. It's not necessarily about day to day decision making. Uh, he's able to uh, spend time doing other things or is there something else that we should take away from that? Uh, I think that um, it, it can be. It, and this is just me speculating because I don't really know what they do day to day aside from, you know, they're buying these uh, far out of the money put options. Um, but I, I think there is a bit of a machine like quality to the strategy. And he doesn't need to be in the room uh, every day when things are happening. He can see what, you know, what they're doing, what the what the portfolio is doing. Um, and, uh, so it's easy enough for him to, you know, get on zoom. I think probably he has done a lot more of that, uh, since the pandemic, like everybody. Um, but if something crazy happens, he can jump on a plane and be in, uh, Miami in, in, you know, four or five hours. Yeah. And, and then when you look out at, um, kind of the strategy itself, uh, even you seem to be a little bit like, okay, I get the general strategy. But how do they actually do it is probably one of the number one questions you get. Uh, yeah. What level of confidence could you say that you could go and explain to someone like the intricacies and the nuances? Is it something where they really are kind of close to their chest, even though they'll, they'll, they'll describe kind of the high level, but they won't explain the details? Or is it that the details are so complex that it's just really hard for people to wrap their heads around? Again, I can only speculate. Um, but... You know, I think that uh, a big part of their strategy, which you can't replicate, you know, on your, you know, interactive brokers trading account is having relationships on well-established relationships on Wall Street that can allow you to put on these big positions in uh, these derivatives, these options that nobody else wants. You know, I think they also have the stomach and the... the uh, market knowledge to to know that these positions you know which look like you know <laughs> practically idiotic trades uh are going to pay off and you you just got to keep doing it because their their trade is a bet on a 20% decline in the S&P 500 in a month which is pretty nuts <laughs> like you know i think it's it's only happened a couple times um when they launched Universal, the only time that had happened was in 1987, when the the Dow went down 22.7% in a single day. Um, so that was one of the reasons they had a lot of trouble getting investors was, you know, they look at it and say, well, this never happens. <laughs> so, you know, why would I put money into that? Um, but I, I think one of the secrets of the strategy is it doesn't, you don't actually need a 20% decline for those those options to surge in value. You just need there to be a lot of fear uh, in the market that that could happen. And that creates a, you know, sort of feeding frenzy on those positions. Everybody suddenly wants them because it helps balance out their risk in their portfolios. And 
universities there to provide that when everybody wants it. They're the ones who have those positions. Um, they talk about like, you know, they're the only ones with umbrella, an umbrella, selling umbrellas when the storm breaks out. Um, and so you can sell your umbrellas at a, at a high premium. So it's, you know, I think it's just the market knowledge. It's the, the uh, contacts that they have. Um, but I, the difficulty of the strategy is maintaining it in the most cost-effective manner that you can. Because if, if you're trying to do this from your interactive broker's account, you're probably going to lose a lot of money uh, month after month, year after year. And at some point, most people, I think, are going to cut and run and say, forget that. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm losing money, and you know, and they don't have they either don't have the the cash to keep it up or the stomach to keep it up. Talk to me about the risk of ruin. That seems to be one of the things mm. that um, really kind of drives you know part of their marketing, but also I think uh, across Wall Street, you know, people realize, hey, you can compound capital for a really really long time, and it doesn't take that uh, much to just all of a sudden lose it all. Um, and, and obviously yeah. in these market crashes, that's a huge thing. Um, and it's something you talk about throughout the book. Why is that so important? You think as part of their marketing? Uh, well, it's, I think it's a real risk, especially when you're, uh, using leverage. So, you know, if you're, if you're in trades that are 30 to one, 20 to one, you don't need the market to go down that much to completely wipe you out. Um, so that's the risk of ruin. It's, it's also known as gambler's ruin. You know, it's like Russian roulette. If you, you know, you can spin the barrel a couple times and you might live, but if you keep doing it, you're going to blow your head off. And that's kind of what, uh, the ruin risk is, um, is you may survive, uh, you know, like if you go in a casino and you put all your money down on red you might make it a couple times, but eventually if you keep doubling down, you're going to lose all your money. And that's, uh, that's the risk they say that they avoid uh, with the strategies they cannot blow up. And, you know, that's the trade that originally with Empirica, uh, Nassim wanted to, to devise a strategy that can't blow up. It can bleed um, and you can lose money over an extended period of time, but there's no leverage in it. It's just, a, you know, you're, you're buying these options, they expire, you, you know, lost the money on that investment, but there's no way that you can, in a, in a big downturn um, with that strategy that you can lose everything. You actually make a lot. It's the, you know, people know Nassim's book, Anti-Fragile. Um, I think that he, he hasn't told me this, but I think that he must have gotten that concept with this strategy because it's the ultimate anti-fragile strategy these put options uh you know you can lose the money on them but when there's a you know big episode of volatility they become anti-fragile they become extremely valuable it, it's fascinating to think about the one thing everyone worries about in blowing up they figured out a way to hang their hat and say that's the one thing that we can ensure won't happen right and, yeah. and it's almost this uh, uh again this contrarian nature uh, to it. Um, talk about um, the 4,400% return. So at the beginning mm -hmm. of uh, COVID, I think it was in uh, March of, uh, of COVID, um, they reported uh, at Universal 4,400% return. There was a lot of people who were kind of, you know, 
breath taken away and they're like, oh my God, that's an incredible return. Then there's mm-hmm. a lot of critics who were like, that's bullshit. You know, they lost money before <laughs> and, and all the, the the critiques that came out. How do you look at that uh, kind of just massive number that they posted in what was one of the most recent, you know, really big market downturns? It's probably where most people don't understand how Universa operates and how they report their returns. So, you know, a lot of funds typically uh, report uh, like if they're a hundred billion dollar fund and they went up to two billion, they're going to say we had a hundred percent return. So Universa is managing uh, what they are actually doing is they're protecting assets and when they tell they disclose their AUM what they're actually disclosing is the amount of assets that they have uh, a protection portfolio on so if they have you know they're protecting 5 billion in assets it's not like they have 5 billion in the market they actually have a very a small percentage of that 5 billion actually in the market at any given time of just a few percentage points of that and that position that sort of overlay uh, on the portfolio that they're protecting, that what that does is that's what the 4,000 plus percent return is on. So it's the return on the options that they had bought during that period of extreme volatility in early 2020. That's where you get the 4,000 plus percent return. And so what does that look like in terms of if they had $100 in the fund, if there's a few percentage points, let's say they had one to five dollars actually deployed at the time in those options for forty four hundred percent return, that gets them still hundreds of percent on the total capital, but it's not the forty four hundred percent on the, on the entire fund size, right? Which would be crazy, right? It, you know, four thousand percent on five billion. Um, I mean, anybody who knows the strategy, anything about it, they they know that that's not what they were saying, but they. You know, people still like to criticize them because either they're, you know, competitors or jealous or they just like to throw mud at at, at Nassim and Mark. Um, but, you know, I talk to uh, tail hedge managers and they're what I think irritates some of their competitors is that they don't report in the same way that Universa does. Um, and they're like, well, yeah, I could have said I made. 2000% or 3000% in, in early 2020, but that's not how we report our returns. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's fine. Universa, you know, is the original tail hedge fund. <laughs> they created the strategy. And I, I feel like is, you know, that gives them the right to do report returns however they want. Yeah. What's been the most surprising part? I mean, you've known these guys for a while. Um, as you wrote the book, what what was the part that kind of stuck out to you or maybe the biggest insight that, that you weren't expecting? I think that, you know, how how you can take this worldview that they've learned at as a as a trader, as an asset manager and managing risk, and how that can be applied to other parts of the world. Um, like uh, you know, climate risk is is something that I write about in the book and and something the seam has has written about uh and you know with risks like that you have there's a, these potential extreme events that could happen you don't really know statistically how likely it is 
Um, but you know, the the uncertainty of the potential outcome of these risks is so high that you need to be very careful about managing that risk. And I think that, you know, with black swans in the market, um, you don't know it's going to happen. You don't know that there's going to be a crash, but the uncertainty about (laughs) the potential of it means that you need to be pretty careful about it. You know, like Nassim likes to say, if you don't have trust in the pilot, don't get on the plane. It's the uncertainty of the possibility of these extreme events that people need to take into consideration. But it's also uncertainty that causes people to say, well, you know, we don't really know how bad this is. Why should we take precautions against it? Because we don't really understand it that well. And, you know, you saw that with COVID in 2020 was there were a lot of people, especially early on, saying, well, we need to study this thing more because we don't understand the properties and how contagious it is or how deadly it is. So let's just wait and see and uh, figure it out, and then we can decide what to do. And it's that wait and see uh, mentality that's the problem, (laughs) is we wait too long and game over, you know? And uh, I think that's partly what... uh, Cause the U.S. and other countries to have such, you know, high fatality rates in, in 2020, 2021. Um, and, you know, it's, it's uh, I, I think that it, the original idea of the book actually came in early 2020 when I saw what Universa did. And around the same time, Nassim and some uh, co-authors had written a paper in January of 2020 warning about the uh potential extreme risk that COVID posed and saying, we really need to be careful with this thing. It poses the risk of ruin. Uh, Let's take precautions. Um, They were actually in contact with officials at the white house and they, they communicated that paper to the white house. Um, And it made me think like, what is it about Nassim's ability to see the extreme risk posed by COVID that kind of, maps over onto what Universa did because it's you know the same time you have you know two people who have been engaged in the same market activities coming out looking pretty smart <laughs> when everybody else is in total chaos and losing money uh not understanding covid um that's the thing that i thought you know what is it about they're the way that they see the world that enabled them to get through this period of crazy risk and come out looking pretty smart. And then when you look at um, Spitznagel, what do you think separates him from kind of everyone else, right? Is it something about the discipline? And, you know, even uh, Nassim kind of said, hey, I don't want to do this anymore, right? I don't want to deal mm-hmm. with uh, uh, almost the mundane kind of nature of it. Uh, maybe he didn't want to be the front man, whatever, but like Spitznagel has stayed with this the entire time. What, what is it that separates him? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, you know, I write about how when he was growing up, he was a very intense kid. <laughs> and apparently like he told me he'd walk around his house uh, muttering to himself saying discipline, discipline, discipline. And at the time that was about his uh, practicing uh, on French horn. And he actually became 
like a you know one of the best French horn players in America and was accepted to Juilliard and was going to become a professional French horn player. Um, and then a- apparently uh, his brother told me the story that he he found out how much like the uh, first seat French horn player in the you know New York Symphony made per year, and it was like less than a high school teacher made. <laughs> Um, and he said, forget that. Uh, and it, you know, around the same time he'd started, uh, going to the Chicago board of trade and just became fascinated with it. He just fell in love with it. You know, I tell the story of how his father one day brought him to the Seabot and he, it wasn't at all what he expected. And he, you know, the energy of it, he just fell in love with it. And I think it just, something in him clicked that you know, it was like, this is, this is for me. <laughs> like I wanted, I want to do this. And he just dove into it and it's just all, you know, I think he's, it's just a natural fit. He's a, he's a natural born trader. And uh, the discipline that he learned, you know, under uh clip about learning to lose, I think that mentality has separated him from most other uh traders who who do not like to lose um it's also you know i mean if you think about the incentive structures on wall street you you most uh people traders or money managers or whatever they have their eye on their annual bonus um which that's all that matters for them is how big that bonus is going to be year after year if you're losing money <laughs> year after year you don't get a bonus there's no bonus so the incentive structures on Wall Street are just designed uh, to pretty much force traders to adopt a strategy that's going to give them, uh, you know, steady returns. But they're taking this risk, and I think that you know the the bet is well if I can if I can hang on for five years, you know, and before I blow up, I'm going to do I'm going to have you know a lot of money. Um, maybe they can make it longer than that, but. Uh, um, that's not the way Universa operates. They, you know, they make their money very incrementally or very, very, uh, rarely. And, you know, I asked, uh, I asked them, you know, how do you get your traders to stick with this? Because they don't have that, you know, uh, incentive of the big bonus at the end of the year. And they said the way they get them to think about it is like having an option, uh, for in a company. And, you know, when it goes public, you're going to make a lot. You're going to, you know, it might be, um, you know, a few years where you're you're not going to get much of a return. But when those options pay off, you're going to get a lot. I want to read you a quote. This is uh, a banker talking about a gentleman named uh, Suleiman Olian. He's uh, one of the richest guys in Saudi Arabia, built a massive uh, conglomerate of a bunch of different businesses. And his banker said the following. You could see clearly that he wanted to be successful. You didn't see him in bars or nightclubs. He was a serious person. He was always looking for new business, and he wanted to seize every bit of opportunity that came his way. He was almost compulsively ambitious. The Mm -hmm. reason why I thought of that specific phrase is he was a serious person. You could clearly see he wanted to be successful. Like All these points of this banker talking about Suleiman is very similar to what you're saying about uh, Mark Spitznagel. But then it talks about he was almost compulsively ambitious. And one of the interesting things about this strategy is to some degree, you have to temper 
ambition of doing things outside of the strategy, of losing discipline, of trying to get too smart or too greedy. And so it's fascinating mm-hmm. to me, right? And, and I think in kind of reading the book of like, you have to be ambitious enough to want to do this and kind of stick with it, but you also have to uh, be self-aware enough to know that if you get greedy, if you become undisciplined, you basically ruin the strategy and all of the value, you know, dissipates very quickly, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a model. It's a, it's a strategy. And, you know, Nassim has said he's never seen Mark uh, stray from the model once uh, the, the, the protocol, as they call it, the Black Swan Protocol. Um, so he, it's it is definitely discipline, um, and it's I think it's just hard to do. And and one important thing about the universal strategy, uh, you know, as as I, as I point out in the book, is this is not designed to be a uh, strategy for your whole portfolio. No one would put all their money into a university fund you, you actually based on the historic returns you actually pre, would have done pretty well um with you know very lumpy uh, gains uh it's meant to be a overlay of a broader portfolio of stocks and maybe some bonds so you know what mark says is we recommend our clients that you put three percent uh into our fund and the rest you can put into stocks and the idea is that, you know, traditional uh, portfolios, um, you know, that many pension funds follow is the 60-40 strategy of 60% in the stock market, 40% in bonds or other less risky assets like, you know, maybe some gold and uh, currencies, commodities. Um, the problem with that strategy, according to Mark, is that you're giving up a lot of upside in the market. And that's really where your returns come from. And the, and the market has historically uh, done pretty well. <laughs> uh, the problem is that the market can be really volatile sometimes and go down a lot. So if you protect yourself during those volatile times and you have a, a trade that will give you this big infusion of cash uh, when everything is down and are you know more attractive, uh, that you're going to do pretty well over time. And and that's basically in a nutshell what what their strategy is. It's fascinating when you see um, how long they've been doing this. Um, and, and you mentioned that there's a lot of people on Wall Street that have started to kind of wake up to this. Do you anticipate that there will be many, many more copycats, uh, including could we see a BlackRock uh, or, or other types of, you know, Fidelity, like very, very large asset managers start to introduce these strategies as well? Um, they, you know, some are, and there's some ETFs that are coming out. Uh, I somehow suspect that if the market continues to be pretty calm and, and, you know, trade up and down, but, you know, not the volatility that we saw in 2020, I kind of bet that, you know, the popularity of the trade is going to fade. Um, and as we've seen before, I mean, after 2008, a bunch of copycats jumped in and uh, launched their tail hedge funds and hung around for a few years. <laughs> it, it's just the nature of this strategy that it's very tough to maintain uh, over a long period of time. So we'll see. I mean, you know, universes obviously attracted a lot of money and and that's going to cause people to say, hmm, well, <laughs> I, I like uh, I like those uh 
um, management fees. So yeah, there might be some more, but we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm a bit skeptical. Scott, Chaos Kings is the name of the book, How Wall Street Traders Make Billions in the New Age of Crisis. Uh, it is not only fascinating from an education standpoint, I think that uh, one of your skills is you also write in a very entertaining fashion so people can kind of read it and you just keep wanting to read more and more. Um, I really enjoyed this book. So anyone who wants to go pick it up, Chaos Kings, Scott Patterson, uh, I highly suggest you do that. Um, I'm assuming you can buy this Amazon or any of the uh, various books, uh, also audiobook, ebook, or physical book. Um, but Scott, if somebody wants to find you on the internet or, or kind of follow up with you on anything you talked about today, where can we send them? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Patterson Scott. Uh, I've got a website, uh, scottpattersonbooks.com. And uh, yeah, if you can find the book on Amazon or uh, Barnes & Noble, wherever. Awesome. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, as I mentioned, the book is fantastic. So I appreciate you entertaining Thanks, me Bob. for a couple hours as I uh, as I read it. And uh, we'll definitely have to bring you back when you write the next one. We'd love to. 